0: Hi, Bonnie. Hey, Sydney. The other week, you were telling me about this woman you met at the conference in Sault Ste. Marie. Um, Yeah, Molly. Um, She's
1: RC Grant Outreach Specialist. She does invasive species work in Milwaukee, right? Yeah. When I
0: first heard about Molly, I had the impression she was training beetles, like the way you would train a dog to do a trick. And... I later learned that that was not exactly what was going on. Yeah, have you ever trained an animal to do something? I've helped train dogs. Um,
1: my mom trains horses, kind of for a living, so I'm like familiar with that. But I've I definitely never done horses. that. What does she? She's like taught herself how to train horses from the time they're babies, and like it's a few years until horses are like ready to be ridden and stuff. Like you have to do that much work beforehand. So have you trained something?
0: Um, My dad has kind of trained our cat to like always come under the table while he's eating dinner because he used to feed her off his plate and then he realized (laughs) that that was really annoying. But now she's just so conditioned. Um, But that is not exactly what Molly is doing. At any point, Molly will be working with up to four different species of these beetles. They're called Garrett beetles but people call them cella beetles and every spring she goes out collects them from these wetlands and brings them to her home and to her office which I guess is a sea grant office so it's probably not that crazy <laughs> um <laughs> we do have a baby sturgeon in our freezer <laughs> I know she emailed me the day when I was trying to set up a time to talk with her she emailed me she was like oh yeah I am going to be in Madison because I'm picking up some lampreys, but she never <laughs> specified if they were alive or <laughs> what the status on those were. It was dead, by the way. It was really dead. Anyway, Molly came by the studio and told us more about what she's been up to.
2: I'm Molly Bodie. I'm originally from Appleton area of Wisconsin. I started with Sea Grant and working with aquatic invasive species. So I have Ozaki Milwaukee, Racine, and Kenosha counties right now.
0: Molly has these beetles that they're called cello beetles, or actually they're called Garrett cello beetles, but everyone just calls them cello beetles, and it's really cute. Have you ever seen one? No, I have so many questions. All right, I have some photos.
1: Oh. I don't know why I said all. It's, a <laughs> it's really
0: cute. I know, they're like kind of endearing. Yeah. Yeah. It's like
1: um, brown. It's got little antennas. It's not creepy looking yeah, like I usually like think of. Yeah, it's a
0: really lovable little beetle. Yeah. <laughs> it's about, you can't really tell from that photo, but it's like the size of a pencil eraser. Mm. The color. It's really of, small. Yeah, it's like the color of Hershey chocolate. I don't think they'll taste good, so don't try it. <laughs> okay. She keeps them outside her apartment and behind her office in these kitty pools with like
2: nets over them to contain them. Which involved talking to my landlord and my neighbors that do the lawn care. I asked her if she's ever had
0: any other types
2: of pets. I mean I have two cats and they're still alive and they're they're five and three so I mean kind of. <laughs> I've definitely with this program or this job I've gotten a lot more comfortable with being with nature. Oh so she has She has cats and beetles in a in a pool in her
1: yard.
0: (laughs) The the cats are not in the pool. The beetles are. Important clarification. Um, Yeah, but I don't know what image you have in your mind right now of what this looks like. But it's not like some kind of ant farm operation. I don't know if you did that when you Mm. were a kid. I definitely did not because I thought that was gross. Anyway, last summer, Molly thinks she wound up with 12,000 beetles, which she then released to these area wetlands. And the program she was talking about was the Wisconsin DNR's Purple loosestrife Biocontrol Program.
1: I've heard that they, there's some way that you can use beetles to um, and kind of train them to eat a certain plant that we don't like.
0: That's kind of of what's going on here. Yeah. Um, The story I wanted to share with you today follows the tiny little cello beetles that Molly raises on this long, slow journey from this lab in Switzerland to Wisconsin's wetlands. But it's also the story of the researchers and community members who've helped raise the beetles along the way, and, and also how the beetles have changed our understanding of what it means to call something an invasive species. Have you ever seen loosestrife? I'm not sure. Um, I'm not super good
1: at identifying plants, but I've heard it's purple, grows in <laughs> marshes.
0: The plant people I talk to mm-hmm. clarify that it's actually fuchsia, so oh, yeah. technicality. Here's a photo. Oh, it's like...
1: A really pretty purple flower yeah it's kind of so pretty long (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah I feel like I've seen these in marshes Mm -hmm. um but before I knew they were invasive I thought they were really pretty and that I kind of wanted to go take photos in there or something like that right
0: yeah it's they are super pretty and that's kind of how how they got um Mm. so widespread here is what a wetland (laughs) looks like uh, this is a photo I found. I think this is probably like a pretty extreme example. Whoa. This but... looks
1: just like a flower field of purple, like a field of purple. Yeah, like
0: straight day glow pink going on in this Sorry, photo. Sorry, I, but... I keep neglecting to say fuchsia. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this is a pretty extreme example of, um, I guess you could describe this as like a complete monoculture. People use that word to talk about like agriculture when you just have like one crop, but Mm -hmm. you could also use it to describe like what's happening in this photo of a wetland where you look out across this expansive space and it's only one plant that you Mm -hmm. can really identify. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So loosestrife is this wildly successful plant that came over with European colonists, and it freaks people out because once it comes into a wetland it pretty much stays there and it's really hard to control. It nudges out plants like that might have been there before and might be either doing something really important in that ecosystem mm-hmm. like controlling flood water or offering habitat to other things that call that wetland home. You usually find this plant, yeah, like I said, in wetlands, along floodplains, and disturbed areas like construction sites or mm-hmm. along highways. So you probably have seen it as you're driving. It's usually around five feet tall, but I've read that it can get up to ten feet tall. Oh my god, that's
1: way <laughs> taller than I imagine any like wetland plant. I know, to be.
0: right? If that was like a Christmas tree, my mom would have been like, "No, it's too tall. <laughs> we can't take this one home." <laughs> Loostrife is naturalized here, meaning that it's found suitable habitat to grow without help from humans. One plant can produce more than two million seeds every year, which is like so many seeds. Sounds like so many. Tim Campbell, our Sea Grant Aquatic Invasive Species Specialist, told me more about this plant, its history here in Wisconsin, and why it's something that people are worried about.
3: So Purple Loostrife is a wetland invasive plant that could have came in ballast water or like sediment ballast but also it's a really pretty plant so i'm sure it also came over uh, in the plant trade as well
0: so many modes of entry but then as people start moving west across north america they're bringing all of those plants with them and then fast forward 200 years and people in garden clubs are swapping seeds with each other and going to conventions and like oh i have the seed here you go like um the DNR w- woman I talked to said that she has bought seed kits that she is fairly certain had loose strife or other plants that we would now call invasive <laughs> in them. Oh, wow! so yeah. they're still kind of selling and trading this? Not anymore. Now, now that's a huge no. They're on, um, you know, the DNRs do not <laughs> sell this plant mm-hmm. list. But that was, that's only been a recent thing. Before, this was widely circulated, and people liked it because it's beautiful and fuchsia.
3: Within the past like 20 or 30 years, it became a really big issue across the Great Lakes region. Uh, Don't plant loosestrife.
0: One reason loosestrife is so successful here is because, unlike in Europe, it doesn't have too many serious pre-existing predators. So, for Mm -hmm. instance, in... Europe, you'd rarely see loosestrife take over in a wetland the way you would here, simply because it's been part of the environment there for such a long time that other things have evolved alongside it that can put pressure on it. Hmm. And that's how— they eat it? Yeah, they eat it. They— yeah (laughs) tasty delicious flowers um taking a plant like loose strife out of its ecological context i guess you could say and then bringing it to a place where it doesn't have well-established predators or other types of pressure is how a lot of things become invasive so when you take that thing and you put it in wisconsin (laughs) in a wetland it can really just flourish Mm kind of at the expense of everything else that was already in the wetland. So there are things that control loosestrife in a pretty significant way, but they just aren't here in America and Wisconsin. So
1: how would you get loosestrife out of a wetland? Like, I've heard of people going in and manually picking out plants that they don't want
0: or using chemicals to get rid of the plants. I learned that managers have tried of those things on loose strife. <laughs> like not to be super pessimistic but the loose strife just grows back so it's not it's not sustainable or like a long-term solution. It's really hardy. It's very hardy. <laughs> um, so anyway that's where Molly comes in with her cello beetles because in Europe those beetles eat the loose strife. Researchers basically were wondering what would happen if they brought those beetles back to the United States. And the thought underlying all of this is that if you can find a predator that eats loosestrife in a big enough way to keep it in check, you can use that species to control strife, which is essentially the whole principle of biocontrol. And Tim told me more about that program in Wisconsin
3: we realized that this beetle only feeds on purple loosestrife, so we wouldn't cause any other problems through releasing it. And what we found out here in Wisconsin, that it works really well in a community science setting where we could work with lake associations and other groups interested in protecting their wetlands. So they could you know, take purple loosestrife plants, um, grow them in these little kiddie pools that I'm sure Molly has maybe talked about. Um, and then with kind of a, a starter kit of beetles, uh, you can grow these beetles over the course of a few weeks, and um, you know after you know up to 10 weeks, you might have thousands of beetles that you can then release in your wetland, and uh, you do that a few times, and over time, those beetles will control the purple loosestrife uh, for you. And so while it doesn't completely get rid of the loosestrife, it manages it in such a way that it just kind of fades back into the ecosystem and just becomes a part of it rather than the most dominant part of it. And really, the purple loosestrife biocontrol program is one of uh, the most successful you know, control programs for aquatic invasive species that we have, you know I think.
0: For Mali and communities across the state, the work Tim was talking about starts really early in the spring when the loose strife first starts to come out and the ice melts off the wetlands and the cello beetles, which overwinter underground start to come out. So before mm. she can start raising the beetles, she has to actually go collect loose strife. So she's using okay. the loose strife. To raise the beetles that eat the loose drive, Okay. <laughs> which is a, kind, kind of, of a puzzle. I know it's confusing. There are a lot of um, <laughs> there are a lot of parts going on. Mm-hmm. Molly will pull on her waiters. She'll grab a friend. You're best off going on a calm day when it's sunny out, and she'll head to a nearby wetland.
2: So she has to go out and collect this what she calls propagation stock. We start growing plants from root stock in mid spring. And once they get to about a foot and a half tall, that's when we want to get the beetles for them. So she'll go back to the wetlands.
0: And if there are beetles there, they're going to be on the loose strife because that is all they eat. So she only takes the beetles from wetlands where she knows that they're enough to be self-sustaining. Um, because she wants to make sure that there's going to be a large enough population left to Continue to control the loose strife in those places.
1: So the beetles, the loose strife came over, but the beetles didn't. And so, how is she going out and harvesting beetles? Is that from where humans have put them on? Exactly.
0: There? Yeah. Wow. There are places where now the beetles, like the loose strife, are both, mm-hmm. I guess you could say, naturalized. And they've just, mm. they're the beetles are feeding on the loose strife. And there's enough loose strife to sustain the beetles. And then, once there isn't, my understanding is that the beetles just die or mm. they go to another patch where there's loose strife. She has the loose strife, it's in these kiddie pools, and then she'll take the beetles home, she'll put the beetles in the kiddie pools with the loose strife, and then um, she'll leave the beetles there for most of the summer. And then in about
2: seven weeks... You can release those by the hundreds or thousands into different stands so they can actually make an impact and spread them where they normally wouldn't be able to spread themselves.
0: So I asked Molly what the most rewarding part of her work was.
2: I mean, I think for me, it's when I was releasing them out into the public or getting ready to release them and having people talk and actually be really interested in what we're doing overall to fight invasive species. The hope is that, obviously, we can get volunteers involved and get donations of, like, potting materials so that we can actually have those available for the public for use and have an education basis with it as well. So I'm working on that. Not quite there yet, but I started this, starting this from the ground up,
1: so. Yeah, if I saw someone with a kiddie pool with, like, plants growing in it and, like, is there a nut over it or something? (laughs) Yeah. I would
0: be like what's going on there? Maybe I should <laughs> ask my neighbor what they're doing. I know. Molly said that that was kind of her experience, but also that people were really open to it and excited about the work she was doing. But anyway, so these beetles that Molly has, if all goes well, they'll start to nibble back on the strife, and then that'll open up space for more plants and other wetland habitat can come back. Mm. And like Tim said, the program has been super effective. So in the wetlands that had been dominated by strife. Um, Tim and the other people I talked to said that you are starting to see rare native plants regenerate, which is significant because those are often the first that get displaced when you have an invasive come in. Introducing biocontrol like the beetles creates this pathway for more diversity in these wetlands. And... The plant specialists that I talked to emphasize that diverse wetlands are also the most resilient wetlands. So in the biocontrol scenario, the purple stripe doesn't always go away, but it's not the only thing left in a wetland.
1: So we're bringing in we're bringing in beetles from Europe to tackle this this plant that we don't you know is invasive here but like what about the beetles they're adding something new to the ecosystem and they're they're not supposed to live here you know like what
0: if they start eating
1: plants that we don't want them to eat?
0: Yeah that was a huge question on my mind as well we couldn't have timed this story better because the person who is probably uniquely qualified to answer that question is retiring like Like, I think he retired (laughs) now, (laughs) by now. (laughs) Um, So he doesn't come to his Madison office very often anymore, but Mm -hmm. I was really lucky to have the chance to talk to him and the really incredible woman who's taking over for him a few weeks ago.
4: Um, Brock Woods. Uh, I have been the Wetland Invasive Species Control Coordinator for the last 15, 20 years. Blue strife has been a big part of uh, my work I got involved in the early research to try to make sure that it would be safe and effective in the state before we were able to release insects uh, statewide
5: so I'm Jeannie sheer and I have big waiters to fill <laughs> because I'm, I'm I'm taking on the statewide bio control project for purple loose strife so I'm excited to be here Taking it on so he can ride off into the purple sunset. <laughs> wow, these are like the the people, like the
1: state people that are, are working on this problem. Oh, yeah.
0: You know? <laughs> They're the big ones. They sound amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Um, Brock remembers going out to this place called Rome Pond. Have you ever been there? It's kind of no, in your own where's, stopping where's Rome grounds. Rome Pond? I will show you. Yeah. Um, uh here it is on a map it's like i guess it's not a pond as much as it's like Mm -hmm. a flowage um it's on the bark river it looks
1: kind of big yeah Yeah. i'm I'm from south central wisconsin yeah so this is
0: around there this is around there like sullivan is really close to that and Mm -hmm. then highway 18 just like skirts it from the north Hmm. it's like very driven past this close to jefferson (laughs) yeah it's super pretty
1: there's like a little little fence on the road and you can see the the pond. It looks like it has some marsh and wetlands. This is like also a nice fall picture, so the colors are pretty.
0: Brock was going out there right when this program started.
4: Rome Pond had loose strife that was well over my head in height. Uh, I used to t- have to take a ladder out to get up high enough to get above the loose strife to take a picture of the site.
0: Oh my God, that's crazy. I know, I can't even imagine what You that have would to be like.
1: bring your ladder to like inspect your plants <laughs> Yeah. So I can see why he
0: was going to to Rome Pond. He picked Rome Pond as a test site because it was kind of small, it's like remote-ish, so if something went really wrong, it would be easier to contain. Um, and it was, it was also easy to monitor, except it actually sounds really hard to monitor <laughs> He had to get up on like a ladder to even see what was going on out there. Um,
1: Where did they even get this idea? Like, had have people done this before?
0: Oh yes, there is a long history of people doing this, and sometimes it works better than others. But in this case, Brock was the one actually out in the field doing those tests.
4: We did this for research purposes, so we had to go. Th- we had to wade through this stuff and set up forty by forty meter grids using tapes and uh, metal conduit posts for the corners and put in quadrats and everything. But then you let them go along one end of the the grid.
0: Then bang the beetles. And then you follow
4: them and see what they do, where they go and so forth. Um, and that's frankly that's the most exciting part <laughs> of a research project is you're you're doing this and you're going, I, I don't know what's gonna happen. I, I know what I hope happens, <laughs> um, but, you know, you try to keep an open mind and just think, you know, okay, there's risk in everything you do. Walking across the street or releasing biocontrol insects that you've tested and retested and tested again, um, this worked out beautifully. And I, it's really a poster child, I think, for effective classic biocontrol.
1: Oh, I love that image of like them releasing beetles on one side of like a grid and just like following the bugs. I know. Just follow them. See what they do. I'm, like not knowing. Brock is um, taking risks by crossing the street and the beetles are like crossing like a, a new pond in a new country. <laughs>
0: right. <laughs> anyway, the story starts actually long before Brock is out there shoulder deep in the Loose Strife and Rome Pond. Um, it actually starts years before in the early 90s in switzerland where this team of researchers contracted by the u.s government were meticulously testing and retesting beetle after beetle after beetle after beetle beetle, trying to find just the right one to let loose here in wisconsin so the research that happened early on in the beetles home range and the loose strife's home range was to identify like what insect is only going to eat loose strife but it's hard to know when you're in europe because there are plants here that that beetle has never seen before. So it's possible that the beetle is going to be fine and it's going to come over and do its job. Or it's possible that it's going to be like salad bar and then go wild (laughs) and eat stuff like that beetle has never seen wild rice before. Like who knows what would happen? So they, they were just looking at like each individual beetle being like, what do you prefer to eat? What do you prefer to eat? Yes, exactly. Um, that that's called host shifting. And,
1: what there's a word for it's that? something
0: that could be a disaster <laughs> biocontrol has gone horribly wrong in the past like this is not new. new for example there's this poisonous frog called the cane toad i actually think it's a toad yeah this sounds like it could go bad <laughs> <laughs> you have no idea um it's native to parts of south and central america and it eats this weevil that is like mega destructive in sugarcane crops so in florida mm-hmm at one point they're trying to grow a lot of sugar and they have this weevil and they're like, oh. Is that like a little bug? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it eats this weevil that can harm the sugar cane crops. And in the 30s, um, people were like, hey, we have this weevil in our sugar cane and we know that these toads will eat it. So we're just going to take a bunch of toads and set them loose. Feral <laughs> um, toads. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, so you can see where that was going. And the toads really did take off. And now, like, it's like a huge problem and it's still a problem. Like, like 90 years later, there's still these toes just running around in Florida and they're super poisonous and like oh things eat them and get really sick and die, oh like God. dogs eat Whoa. them. Um, it's this major problem and it just in hindsight seems so avoidable. Like right. y- you could have you could have figured out that this was going to happen <laughs> maybe a little bit. Did, did um, it take away
1: their weevil problem?
0: Yeah, like it's effective, but like at what cost? Yeah. And so it's the same question that applies to the cello beetles. Mm-hmm. Brock explained how researchers and agency people partnered across two continents to find answers to that question. And actually, you can replicate this test on your own, like basically the same test they were doing. Actually, not the same test, but kind of similar. Um, And it's part of this activity that Brock does with kids in schools around Wisconsin, and he calls it Beetle (laughs) Schmorgisborg.
4: You take a Petri dish or some kind of enclosable container and put samples of lettuce, and broccoli, and uh, decadon verticillatus, water willow, a native that's closely related to loosestrife, around in the petri dish, and maybe uh, a sprig of loosestrife leaf. Then you take some of the beetles that we send out that are really hungry because they just came off their winter sleep, and you let them go right in the middle. And then you follow them to see what they eat. And uh, I'll clue you in, the only thing they have ever eaten in any of these setups that I've heard of is the loosery. So in theory, kids can do original biological research if they test a plant which no one has ever tested before. And that's relatively easy. I don't think anybody's ever tested kohlrabi
0: yeah, so the tests they did in Europe were kind of like that. Um, that's, like, the gist. And so they started with a ton of possible insect candidates, but then they out it down to a few select species, and then they sent those species over to the slab at Cornell, and they kept them under quarantine. It was this big thing because they were, like, shifting these beetles that, like... There was a lot of uncertainty, and Brock had to talk to a lot of different people from a lot of different agencies.
4: Individuals have to uh, get together, and and as a group, then, they have to be convinced that the safety of coming from introducing uh, a potential control organism is is, uh, insured enough that they can sign off on it.
0: Jeannie explained what it is about the cello beetles that actually did make people feel like, oh, it it's okay, we can we can let you free here. Well, they're
5: not eating anything but the loose strife. So if so say one of the species being tested had been it would eat all the loose strife until it had pretty much eaten itself out of house and home, and then it jumped over and attacked the native loose strife, then You've got a really big problem because it then it's it is an invasive, but it's very specific, very host specific. It's not going to go and attack other things; they'll just die.
4: It's a coevolution of the insects and the plants, which has been my interest and in why I got involved in the first place. Really, it's that coevolution which makes the relationship between what is initially our troublesome exotic invader plant. Uh, and the thing that controls it, uh, it makes that the relationship so tight that, it, assuming that it has developed that way, as I say, classic bio is basically built on plants and the insects which feed on them.
0: Pretty convincing. <laughs> I'm convinced. Um. So yeah, after all this testing there were just four insect species that they decided it was going to be okay to release in the US. And actually there was going to be one more but they in this process they discovered that it had this parasite and so the beetle wasn't doing this behavior they call host shifting, but they had no idea what the parasite was going to do. And no. so, and, and they didn't have a way to test that in a way that they felt mm-hmm. confident enough about. So that's like the level of meticulous detail mm-hmm. that they're thinking about. It's not just like the beetle. It's like, what is the beetle going to bring? So
1: Yeah, totally. So the other four insects, were those, those aren't cello beetles? Those are different
0: kinds? No, those eat- are all cello beetles. Oh, they're just different. They're different types. Okay. Yeah, so the beetles. Brock compares them to guilds of birds on a tree. Some of them forage on the leaves, and some of them are on the stems, and some of them are like down in the roots. And also their roles shift at different points in their life cycle. Once a population
4: gets going, assuming there's enough plant material there to sustain a population large enough to keep going, um, uh, yeah, they should stay around.
0: So... Finally, Brock gets a few batches of beetles from the lab in New York here in Madison, and he takes them out to a couple select sites in, in Wisconsin, including Rome Pond mm-hmm. on the Bark River. And for years, he goes back to Rome Pond to check up on the beetles, see what they're up to, um, and he would talk to people who spend a lot of time out there also and see if like they've observed anything going on. Mm-hmm. And basically, he's just like keeping track of... All the ways that the ecosystem is changing and after years everyone starts to agree that the beetles are going to work and that they actually are effective and that it's time to expand the program statewide and bring the beetles to more wetlands so at this point though it's brock and this very small group of people and what they have to figure out is how does this small team with very limited funding produce literally millions of beetles and then move them to these very remote locations around Wisconsin, which he was describing this. And I was like, that is so daunting, but it worked out.
4: It turned out using uh, that citizen resource is the best way to go. And We
5: have wonderful volunteers throughout the state doing um, various types of monitoring including for invasive species and and sometimes the question is well now what you know after you've collected all that information data and purple loose stripe is a, a perfect example of
0: well this is now what
1: so they get volunteers to help them go out and put beetles in in different places and see if it's working
0: yeah exactly they realize that engaging communities across the state, was going to be a super effective way of spreading the beetles around the state and actually making an impact in in wetlands. Um, and Jeannie said that having these beetles is kind of magical. they there's just they're
5: charming they, little critters. They are. I mean, people end up falling in love with their
0: beetles. <laughs> charming little critters. Oh, uh, I know. So at peak times, there have been upwards of 80 rearing sites. That's like the kiddie pool, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Established by partners across the state. And Brock said that enlisting people to help is the easy part. He explained what some of his encounters in the field have been like.
4: I sometimes used to walk into uh, uh, gas stations when you're fueling up your state car and I'd have around my neck something that's called an aspirator. It's a rubber tube that ends in a little vial And uh, people would look at it and go, what the heck is that thing? (laughs) And I'd say, it's an aspirator. It's a what? I'd say, well, you pull off one tube, put it in your mouth, and and hold the other end of the little tube coming out of the vial by a beetle, and you suck on the tube, and the beetle gets drawn into the vial. And they go, what the heck? (laughs) i say, this is all for raising beetles. Wait, you raise beetles? (laughs) I said, yeah. Um, Does that sound... Odd? Say, well, <laughs> Yes, it does! Why on earth do you do this? Well, because we have an invasive plant that has been uncontrollable with chemicals and uh, turns out that the most feasible way to deal with this plant over the long term is to reduce its size and, and to some degree numbers um, by virtue of uh, bringing the predators that control it in its home range here. And in order to do that, really, you have to produce a lot of beetles and get them out all over the state. And so we have people locally who raise beetles for us. And often they would say,
0: "Can I do that?" <laughs> <laughs> and so I,
4: recruiting volunteers, for the most part, has been—it's uh, been a lot of fun.
0: So Brock supplies the propagation stock, like. The plant and the beetles and then if you give the beetles a home the beetles do the rest and then at long last you can release the beetles in their thousands into a wetland the final step though is after you've done all this you still have to think about what is going on in the wetland and you might have to like reintroduce plants that lost habitat after the beetles or after the loose came in brock said that if you eliminate the loose strife but then you don't actually do anything else Um, you really haven't accomplished anything. Like if you don't see the plants Mm -hmm. come back in, you might as well just have loose strife because at least Mm -hmm. it's like something. Um, Again, the goal here is to promote diverse and flourishing wetlands and cutting back the intervening plants is only half the work.
4: That's quite a (laughs) long-winded sort of introduction to the program.
0: After the break... We're gonna go back to Rome Pond, check up on the Beatles, and see what's happened since. So, Brock returned to Rome Pond for years, and he documented everything that was going on there. Jeannie's been back, too, and she said the beetles are still out there. I've seen them. <laughs>
4: yeah, they are.
5: I've gone to, like, some of his original places, and that purple blue stripe is still maybe three to four feet tall. The flowers are all wimpy. You can still see beetle damage on them all these years later. You know, it's plus 25 years now for some of those sites, so... They're working and they're not bothering anything else. Oh, 25
1: years later, it seems a lot different. Like no longer do you have to stand on ladders to see it.
0: There are definitely challenges. For one thing, weather has a really, really big impact on, on the beetles. Oh, really? You know, the beetles go into
5: the soil over winter. And then if by the time they're ready to come back out for spring, if we get a polar vortex come down or extreme flood events, you could lose your beetle populations that are supposed to be up there feeding on it and getting in check and laying eggs and the larvae then would eat the more of the plants and, and go on to be adults to overwinter for the next winter. So if your winters are crazy, like we've been having the last couple of years, you're going to lose those beetles.
1: Mm-hmm. So the beetles are kind of sensitive to like extreme
0: extreme winters or whatever weird weather things we could have. Rainstorms, or just really unpredictable weather, I guess, is harmful to the beetles. More intense rainstorms can really impact the way these populations function.
4: When you put all your eggs in one basket, you know... They-
0: you know, like the eggs being beetles.
4: <laughs> ...can go wrong quickly. But when they're all down in the soil, if that wetland then floods, and is underwater for even as short as a couple of days you could lose your entire population and so these summer huge rain events we've been getting uh, have have really hit some of these populations pretty hard i think and while it may not eliminate them all um, it may drop the numbers down to where they uh, can no, no longer get by the bottlenecks that populations are subject to and they may disappear or they may stay there, but their number is so low that it takes a long time to build them back up. So we get
5: to give them a booster shot once in a while.
4: <laughs> and add a few more beetles, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And
5: well, and Brock's found, like, he's got one site near Madison where he's always collected beetles and rootstock, and it's hard to even get into it now because it's almost always under deeper water.
4: Climbing the last, oh boy, two, three, four years has really started to affect this project.
0: And and Jeannie mentioned that like seasonal changes like when the ice melts when the loose stripe starts growing when spring starts versus like when the beetles start being active they're aligned under certain conditions but if you start changing like the timing on some of those you could take that delicate relationship out of balance and then and then we don't really, she does, she said she like, nobody really knows what, what will happen or how those changes will play out. And also as climate change intensifies, Brock emphasized that maintaining diverse wetlands is more critical than ever.
4: Um, so diversity is crucial. Um, research has shown over and over in, in the ecological literature, the communities that are most diverse are generally the most stable. Uh, especially in light of disturbances Uh, and with climate change here uh, any community that's made up of one species is likely to run run into a problem that doesn't let it maintain itself if you have a community of a hundred species okay things change maybe you lose one or two but but in that mix there are going to be enough there that will maintain the habitat the way it should be and continue to support uh, a wide diversity of uh, animals of different sorts. So diversity really is key. Um, You can argue philosophically that every species has a right to exist and so to let uh, one plant dominate so thoroughly over the others that it pushes all the others out is really unacceptable from a philosophical point of view Sometimes there is one plant species that might do the lion's share of carbon sequestration perhaps. Um, But having a much broader variety of them there, one plant's going to be really good at this, another plant's going to be good at that. Um, One plant may really suck up and hold a lot of water to reduce flooding downstream. The other one may not be as good at doing that, but it feeds pollinators um, better than the other one. you get a wide variety of services if you have a diverse community. Um, and increasingly, I think that that is gonna be more and more important um, if you look at the way the climate seems to be changing.
0: As climate changes, Wisconsin's wetlands are gonna to change too in, in ways that Brock and other people can't even predict. Mm-hmm. And these places can increasingly become home to species that haven't really interacted before. Um, Strife and the cello beetle are definitely examples of that, but they're also only, like, a tiny part of that story. In that future scenario, some of those plants could be, like, Strife, which were brought here mm, unintentionally intentionally by humans. Mm-hmm. Some of those species could be, like, the cello beetle, which were brought here, like, super intentionally by humans. Mm-hmm. And some of them might just creep on in as their ranges shift. So yeah. but they're all gonna be here, maybe. We don't know how they're gonna interact. Right. Yeah. Right. So that's like the huge challenge. Brock used to go walking with Grant Cottoms, this plant ecologist who did a lot of the foundational work on the botany of Wisconsin in the nineteen fifties.
4: Uh, we go into the Elvium woods and the Arboretum where they planted all these pine trees. Uh, the pine trees were finally getting old about the time Grant was getting old and, and in fact he'd walk through there and he whenever he saw one that had died he'd go over and push on it and he was famous for knocking over dead trees. His, he, it, I, his students were like, why does he do that? And he's just, that was just Grant, well he knew they were going to go anyway, they were going to go anyway, but you could look at him and go okay so these native trees that we planted in here are dying. What's this forest gonna look like in 20 years, 50 years, 100 years? And he was also famous for saying, I don't have a clue. And they go, what do you mean? You worked with John Curtis, you helped write Curtis's Bible on Wisconsin plants. He said, well, look at what's replacing it. Buckthorn, mm-hmm. honeysuckle, Norway maples, you know, calorie pear. All the, you know, we have no idea how these things are going to interact in the future. They aren't going to interact if, if we lose all the native things because we let a few exotic things dominate. What we need to do is figure out how to keep the native stuff let well, the exotic stuff that is here and is never going to go away, thank you, integrate amicably somehow. And what those new communities are going to look like, I don't
0: know. Brat calls those new communities, novel ecosystems. But as
4: long as all the species are here, and you maintain that diversity, you maintain stability in the light of environmental change, you give yourself as many options as possible to keep functioning biological community biological communities that can keep functioning in some way. Exotics are going to be too many places, and for some of them, it's already that way. Um, you need to figure out how to in- let this integrate. But, you know, as long as that integration is happening, you know, just, it's more diversity.
0: Yeah.
4: This is a never ending struggle, unless we get smarter, figure out better ways, non-chemical ways in particular, to control things.
1: So the fact that we're using biocontrol is pretty promising that we're learning how to do that.
0: That was what I took away from this conversation with him. For Brock, biocontrol offers a longer-term way to return balance to ecosystems that might have been, at one point, compromised by invasive species. Purple loosestrife maybe isn't eliminated from the wetland under a biocontrol scenario, but its population goes down enough that like, everything else maybe can come back a little bit. And it's not gonna be the same wetland that it was when you started, like pre-loosestrife. The loosestrife is gonna be there, but now it's just Integrated into the wetland. Okay. So those other plants can start filling in the gaps. When
4: people would come to me and say, "Oh, you're going to get rid of that beautiful plant," my response was, "No, not not at all." But instead of seeing a field of day glow pink-purple...
5: Nothing um, but it.
4: <laughs> it it's, it'll it probably stay in your wetland, but it'll be a splash of color there, and a splash of color there, interspersed with blues, and yellows, mm-hmm. and reds, and, and all the diversity. You know, diversity really is this.
5: It becomes of like part that. of the mosaic. Yeah. If we can get it under yeah. control, like Brock says, where it's not going to absolutely be a monoculture, if it's just a little here, a little there, we could be giving other species a chance to survive.
0: Brock was telling me about a site up in Navarino. Do you know where that is? No. It's it's up by Shano It's this wetland that at one point was like completely overrun with least Strife. But Brock introduced cello beetles there like around the same time he was out at Rome Pond. He's been back back to that site and he Describe some of the changes you've seen since then. When I
4: first got to this site, I had to drive my car way back in on a mud road all the way back in by this flowage. And there was a sea of purple, pink purple. Then there were native things in there, but they were seemed few and far between and small and obviously beleaguered from the tall strife. So we put beetles in and within three years, the strife had gotten much shorter there's just a blossoming of native things. We got native stuff coming back. The loose type is still there. And it'd be fun, and maybe in retirement I'll do this. I'll have time to go back <laughs> and look at some of these sites uh, where we put beetles in, and if they stayed around, you know, to see what in the long term we've gotten. What is this likely? What do we want that to look like?
1: I just want Brock to be proud and to go back to his ponds in retirement and see the loostrife is like balanced and controlled.
0: He's so hopeful about it. And it seems like something that you could talk yourself into being really, really pessimistic about like, oh, we're never going to get rid of this plant. We really screwed up. We messed up. Um, These wetlands are never going to be the same. And Brock's just kind of like, they're not, but change happens. And we can adapt. So if you think you've spotted loose strife in a place where maybe you haven't seen it before, you should definitely contact your local DNR agent or a county conservation coordinator and let them know because that data is really important. You should also contact us because we would be interested to know. And if you want to participate in a biocontrol program, also contact a DNR agent in your county or the Sea Grant, we can help set you up. All of that contact information will be linked on our website and also the curriculum that Brock developed, the Beetle Smorgasbord, and way more, um, that that's free and available online and we've linked it as well.
1: Introduced is produced and hosted by Bonnie Willison and Sydney Wydell. Please subscribe, rate, and review and share this podcast with a friend. You can find Wisconsin Sea Grant on Twitter at grant and on Facebook at University of Wisconsin Sea Grant and Water Resources Institute. We'd love to hear from you. Send in your questions and comments to bonnie at aqua.wisc.edu. You can listen to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play. Thanks for tuning in.